Today's text is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let me open with a word of prayer first. Jesus, you are the one that our hearts long for most desperately. So as we look at your word, may you speak clearly, may you speak powerfully. May you warm our hearts to know you, to love you. Please, Spirit, speak, for we are listening. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. As Christians, we often talk about our testimony. And usually when you say testimony, we refer to how we became Christians. And as Christians, a testimony is very important because we believe you cannot inherit your faith. Uh, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home uh, it doesn't matter if your parents preach the gospel to you every night. At some point, you actually have to become a Christian. Sometimes people will kind of hyperbolically say, well, I was born in the church. But I can assure you, unless your mom literally gave birth to you in a church building, you were not born in the church. Everyone, no matter what home you grew up in, at some point, become a Christian. Place your faith in Christ. Trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And so we love sharing testimonies. We love hearing testimonies. 
It's deeply encouraging to hear how God draws people to himself, how he did it in unique ways and specific ways. Well, that's always been the case. That's not something new. We've always loved hearing and sharing testimonies. And we have in our story this morning is one of the first recorded testimonies of someone coming to faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Literally one of the first. This happens on the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just a few hours later. And the testimony, and it also was really interesting too, it's not the story of an apostle or, or well-known church leader. We're told the name of one of these disciples, Cleopas. We've never heard of him before. We never hear of him again. He doesn't write scripture. He doesn't found churches. These are just two ordinary followers of Jesus, and we get a picture of how they became Christians. And this testimony follows a progression. It begins with these two disciples in a place of doubt and disbelief and discouragement. And there's a, there's a spiritual quickening, and it finally ends with them seeing Jesus and believing. And I think this is given to us to see it as being representative in some way of what happens in every person's life when they come to Christ. Not all of it is going to be normative, obviously, but part of it is given to encourage us and to teach us, which we're going to get into in our text. But our, our, our outline for us this morning, our first point is walking in despair. Second point is beginning to understand. And third point is seeing Jesus. Now to quickly go over our context of where we are in Luke, Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends who was put to death on a cross, and he breathed his last. And the disciples, uh, they thought Jesus was going to be the one who would redeem Israel politically from the Roman Empire, and they watch him die. And they're in shock, and they're in uh, uh, disbelief. Their, 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 their hopes are shattered. And then they go home and they celebrate Sabbath quietly by themselves. Um, and then Sunday morning, we are told that Christ raises from the dead, but not all the disciples know it. Uh, some of the women go, and they, and they receive a vision uh, from two angels telling them Christ is risen, but the rest of the disciples don't believe it. And that's where we pick up. The prevailing mood among the Jesus' followers is despair, disbelief, and confusion. And then verse 13 picks up later that day. So again, I'm going to read 13 to 24. Follow along with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. 
So our, our setting, two disciples, they're walking to Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus is. It's, there's speculations the town doesn't exist anymore, but it was seven miles from Jerusalem, according to the story. Again, one of the disciples is named Cleopas. We've never heard of him before. We'll never hear of him again. These are just two ordinary disciples. And the idea is that they had followed Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. There was probably an expectation that this is when Christ would come into his kingdom. Perhaps they'd been following him for a while. But again, Christ has been crucified. He's dead, as they think. And so they couldn't go home on the Sabbath. They, were, uh, they had to uh, obey the Sabbath rules, which prohibited traveling. But here it's Sunday, and so they're heading home. Uh, it, the assumption is that Emmaus is probably where they live. And on the way, again, you've got to put ourselves in the headspace of these disciples. They've been following Jesus maybe for a couple of years. They believed. They were, I mean, they were, they were in. They believed he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then, lo and behold, they watched Jesus on a cross. And maybe even at that point, there was still a hope. Well, maybe Jesus will come down from the cross, and that will be how he takes his, his throne. It will miraculously descend. But then the unthinking, unthinkable happened, and that Jesus stopped breathing, and he died. And so they're, just, they're, they're in shock. They don't know what to think. And so as they're on this long seven-mile hike, maybe take you three, four hours, they're just talking and processing what has happened. What is going on? And there's some sense that there may have been some debate, too. Again, there were some women who said there was an empty tomb. They're trying to figure out, and it was confirmed that Jesus' tomb was empty. Trying to explain how, what does that mean? But what's clear, as it'll be shown later on, neither of them thinks that Jesus has risen from the grave. They're trying to explain the empty tomb, but neither of them is thinking it's because Jesus has been resurrected. And then as they're walking, along comes this third traveler. Now, Luke is a master storyteller. There's all kinds of irony in the story. I'm going to try to draw out humor because we know something that these two disciples don't know. <clears throat> we know who this third traveler is, that it is, in fact, Jesus. The text tells us that the disciples couldn't recognize him. We don't know if because when Jesus was resurrected, his resurrected body was in a different form, so they didn't recognize him, or if God miraculously kept them from knowing who he was. Either way, they don't, they don't know who this third guy is, but we do. And if you've ever been in that situation in a coffee shop or at work or wherever, and you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation that's very personal and serious, and then some third person tries to strike up a conversation, and you're thinking, how can I, in the most polite way, say, not now? Like, you are not invited to be part of this conversation? Well, that's what's happening, but it's Jesus who is the third, you know, the third wheel here trying to interject himself into the story. And so Jesus annoyingly interjects, what are you guys talking about? Feel the irony in that question. And the disciples are shocked. Because he, Jesus has heard enough to hear them talking about what's going on. And he's like, oh, wait, what, what, what happened? And they're so shocked, they come to a stop. When I was in high school, I was pulled over uh, because my car's inspection was overdue. In Pennsylvania, you have to get your car inspected every year. And mine was overdue. The policeman saw my tag that was expired, pulled me over. I'm a senior in high school, three months away from high school graduation. So he says, I need to see your license, registration, insurance. And in my mind, I'm like, I obviously I know what my license is. I don't know what a registration and insurance are. I feel like I've seen people reach for the glove compartment. And so I reach for it, open it, and there's a whole lot of stuff in there. And so I just look at the police officer and say, I don't know what registration and insurance are. And he looks at me like I was the biggest dummy in the world. 
And he literally has me give all my stuff in my glove compartment to him. He looks through it. It's not in there. Um, and at some point during that proceeding, he asked me, so what are you doing after graduation? I said, oh, I'm going to college. And he literally said, really? Where? <laughs> like, who would let this guy into the college? That's how the disciples are looking at Jesus when he says, what are you guys talking about? They're like, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who hasn't heard about these things? And then Jesus, again, there's just so much irony and humor in here. Jesus somehow with a straight face says, oh, what things? Tell me. What's happened? Now, Jesus isn't messing with these disciples. That's not his point. He's trying to draw them out. He's going to be teaching them. But in order to be able to teach them, he has to engage with them. He has to get them to talk to him. And so he's trying to draw them out so they can teach them what they need to know in order to believe the resurrection. But I don't want us to, move, I don't want us to miss the fact here that this was not a humorous situation for the disciples. Again, we're reading it from the outside. We see the humor. We see the irony but for these disciples, they're in the depths of despair as they're walking along. And the reason for the despair is given in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We know there was a lot of messianic expectation in this time. Over this hundred years, Jesus was not the only Jewish man to claim to be the Messiah. Uh, there was just a deep expectation that a Messiah was going to come, and, and what we think is most of that expectation was political deliverance from the Roman Empire. That was the expectation. And so they said, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And the key phrase there is, we had hoped. But that's in the past, and that was destroyed when Christ stopped breathing. We had hoped. I don't think it's completely a coincidence that Jesus comes to them in their despair. Here's what's interesting. Jesus had told the disciples multiple times. There's three recorded instances in Luke. Three recorded, which means there's many more. Where he said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and given up into the hands of evil men who will put him to death. And three days later, he'll rise. He had told them this, and they had heard it, and it hadn't meant anything to them. And, and again, you know, not everything Jesus said is recorded in scriptures. It would be a million pages long. And so if something's recorded three times, it means it's a regular teaching of Jesus. He's trying to tell them, this is how it's going to be. And for whatever reason, they're just, they're not hearing it. And then it's as they walk through this despair and this discouragement and this hardship and sorrow, all of a sudden then, Jesus appears to them. It's kind of like, and we've all experienced this, because <clears throat> I, I think this despair is preparing them to be able to hear what they've been hearing but not really hearing. We've all had this experience where something happens in our life that's hard, and then all of a sudden a truth in the Bible, which we've heard a million times and we know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've heard that for the first time, of God's compassion, or God's care, or that God is my Father, these truths that, again, we've known, but all of a sudden, in the, in the crucible of a hardship, it's like, I'm hearing it for the first time. I finally get it. Here's, here, here's my point. I think God can use our hardships and even despair to show us things we otherwise couldn't see. And so as Christians, we're not masochists. We don't ask for hard things. We don't, we don't want to go through suffering, but don't despise the suffering that God may bring in your life. Because we serve a father, that means he loves us. That means anything that bring, comes into our life that he allows, that he brings, even if it's hard, it is for our good. And he may sh be showing us things that we otherwise couldn't see. 
<clears throat> it's in the disciples' despair that they begin, that they are ready to begin to understand. And this brings us to our second point, beginning to understand. Let me read verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I wouldn't have given to be there as Jesus gives the first biblical theology of salvation, that would be pretty amazing. We don't know what the details are as he walks them through scripture and explains, but we're given one very important interpretive tool for how to read the Bible. And we're going to get that in a second, but I want to start with first to notice that Jesus begins with a rebuke. In verse, in verse 25, how does he phrase it? He says, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. You know what I think? Jesus is being kind of hard on his disciples who've just been through like a very miserable three days. But the point is, again, and that's why the, the, the angels, when they speak to the women at the tomb, use the same language. Like, what are you doing? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Because they should have known. Jesus had been teaching this. They should have understood by this point, but they don't. And so the first step for these disciples is going to be to repent. But it's interesting. Repentance doesn't mean they need to stop doing an action. They need to change how they think. If you're like me, when I think of the word repentance, I usually think of in terms of actions. Like, don't do this action. Stop lying. Stop swearing. Stop stealing. Whatever. But at its root, the word for repentance actually means to change our minds. And we, 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 we have a, a kind of Western intellectual heritage birthed out of the Enlightenment that had a hard dichotomy between our bodies and our souls. Uh, in philosophy, we call that dualism. And so the idea is, you know, our, our souls are, 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 we are, we are souls that happen to have a body, and, but what's important is our souls, and so our bodies aren't that important, and so you can treat your body terribly, and doesn't really affect your soul. The biblical picture, though, while the soul and body are distinguishable, they're enmeshed. It's a, it's a whole uh, what we do in our bodies affects our souls. What we think affects how we act. How we think affects our emotions or all together. And so when we change the way we think, which is literally what repentance means, it change our minds, it changes how we act. It changes our emotions and vice versa. When we change how we act, it begins to affect how we think and how we feel. It's all enmeshed together. But anyways, Jesus calls them to repentance and it's to change how they think. And what specifically is he calling them to change in how they think? What do they need to change their minds about? And it's two things. It's that all scripture points to Jesus and that it points to his role as deliverer from the curse of sin, not deliverance from political enemies. So first, all scripture points to Jesus. In verse 27, the key phrase, says he begins with Moses and all the prophets. He interprets them in scriptures. And, and the key phrase there is, uh, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means he's going to every part of scripture. He's showing all of it points to Jesus. Not just a couple, like, you know, prophecies in Isaiah. He goes to all parts of scripture. All parts of it in some way are pointing to Jesus. And the reason for that is because the scripture is a coherent story. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament as plan A, 
God was going to do something with Israel, and, and, and then he gave the law, and because we can't, you know, we can't find righteousness through the law, well, then he went with plan B, which was Jesus. But the picture of the Bible is it's, it's one unified, coherent story. From the very beginning, we encounter God through grace, through faith. Christ was prophesied from the beginning. So, for instance, he says he starts with Moses. Outside of Abraham, there was no more important individual for ancient Judaism than Moses. He was the sine qua non deliverer of Israel. God used him to deliver Israel in a way that gave Israel its national identity as a delivered people. Before that, there wasn't that much of a national identity. And they were told there's the patriarchs coming to Israel, or sorry, come to Egypt, and then they're in slavery. But it's when they're delivered, that's when they become the people of Israel. But even Moses, although he was this great man, he was never the point. And he tells us that. Moses, at the end of his life, he tells Israel, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers, and it's to him you shall listen. He says, look, one day God's going to raise up someone like me, but instead of giving you tablets of stone, he's going to speak the words of God in a way that even Moses didn't. Every deliverer in, in, in the Old Testament, whether you're looking at Moses or David or Samuel or Solomon, all of them were never the point. They were pointing forward to how God would one day deliver Israel through the coming Messiah. Every event, every instance in the Old Testament, it's somehow pointing us to Jesus. It's showing us why we need a deliverer. It's showing us how that deliverance will come about. It's showing us the perfection of the one who will deliver us, the innocence. It's showing us his foreshadowings of his substitutionary atonement. There's echoes of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus shows us to his disciples. The Bible is about Jesus. That's the first thing he wants to teach them. The whole Bible, Jesus is the point. He's the point of it all. But the second thing is that the story of the Bible is how God delivers humanity from the curse of sin. Again, I've mentioned there's widespread messianic expectation, but again, the expectation from what we can tell from leftover records, et cetera, et cetera, is it was mostly an expectation God was going to come and deliver Israel from Roman oppression. But that's not what God had promised to deliver his people from. Probably the clearest uh, instance of this would be Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and this is, this is referring to the Messiah. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Moses, David, Samuel, the judges in Israel, these were all temporary deliverers, delivering Israel from temporary problems, but they were pointing forward to the Messiah who would deliver Israel from its most fundamental problem. If we have a God who delivers us from financial difficulty, or from anxiety, or from, you know, uh, health ailments, but he doesn't deliver us from the curse of sin. It, it, it's a temporary deliverance. That's great in the, in, in the short run. But the most fundamental problem, which is, which is living under the curse of sin, which is the ultimate causation of all these things like anxiety and health problems and relational dysfunction, 
That's what we need deliverance from. And that's what Jesus came to bring deliverance from. It's good news. By saying that all of the Bible points to Jesus and the fact that he will come to deliver us from the curse of sin, what that means is that the Bible is primarily good news. That's why in the New Testament, oftentimes it refer to Jesus' message as good news, the gospel, the good news. The Bible is good news in its, in its entirety. We are good news people, people who bring good news to the world, the best news that we who are far from God, who are separated from God without hope, Christ has rescued and redeemed and made his own by his own work. Yeah, we take sin seriously. We listened to Luther when he said discipleship involves a lifestyle of repentance. But you know, what breaks our hearts truly, I think, is not when we beat ourselves up, I'm so sinful, I'm so bad, but it's when we see the love of God, his abundant, overpowering, faithful, never-ending love for us. That's what drives us to broken repentance. We bring good news. God has loved you more than you could have ever imagined. And he made a way for you to know him. It's through his son. He delivers you from the curse of sin. When Christ died on the cross, it looked like the greatest failure of history. But that was the moment in when the descendant of Eve was crushing the head of the serpent. We are good news people, for Jesus has come, and we are so loved. This brings us to our last point, seeing Jesus. Let me read verses 20 to 35. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So finally here the disciples see what we've been seeing the whole time, that this third traveler who seemed so clueless, who then preached an amazing gospel, was in fact the Lord Jesus himself. They arrive at Emmaus, which again is probably the hometown of one of his disciples, and Jesus pretends he's going further, and they, they plead with Jesus, stay, because as Jesus has been teaching them, their hearts have been on fire, and they're like, I don't know who you are, but I, want, I, need, I need to hear you talk more. And they convince Jesus to stay, and it says Jesus is at meal, he's breaking bread. It's uh, reminiscent of when Jesus fed the 5,000, one of his most well-known miracles are also reminiscent of the Lord's Supper when he gave us the institution of the Lord's Supper. But for whatever reason, in the midst of that, their eyes are open and they see Jesus. They finally recognize him. And then he disappears. We don't know why. Perhaps Jesus showed them as much as they needed to know and believe and understand. And then he was no longer needed, um, his physical presence. But he disappears and the process that began in verse 13, where these two disciples began in despair and disbelief and discouragement, it reaches its completion. 
as they see the risen Christ, they understand why his death was necessary so they might be delivered from the curse of sin, and they believe. And those who had left just a few hours before, left Jerusalem in the, in the lowest of lows, now are coming back in excitement and expectation and hope. And of course, when they get back to Jerusalem, they find out that Christ has been meeting with other disciples, meeting with Simon, and now the disciples themselves know Christ has risen. Everything's changed. We have to ask, though, why did Luke include this story? It's a very interesting story. From a story perspective, we could analyze it and its narrative elements. It's very interesting. If you like stories, this is just a fascinating story in how Luke narrates it. But why did he include it? What was he trying to go for? What was the purpose of it? I mean, again, we get this kind of Christocentric interpretation of the Bible. That's certainly very, very important, that, that the Bible is about Christ. All of it points to Christ in some way. Uh, it shows us again how the early disciples went from the unbelief of, of Resurrection Sunday to Pentecost, how that change happened. It gives us an example, certainly encourages us with this early Christian testimony. But as I've thought about it, I, I, I think there's an additional reason why Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gave us this story, and that this story is somehow representative of how all disciples came to believe in Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so... When Jesus rose from the grave, no one believed that he was risen. And then 40 days later comes Pentecost, and, and the disciples are going out and preaching in tongues. How does that happen? Well, there were hundreds of disciples who had to go from unbelief to belief. And we obviously can't hear every single one of those stories. And so I think Luke is giving us, hey, this is representative of what happened to all the disciples. And I think there are elements of it that are representative or normative for us as well. Not that we will all have visions and see Jesus in the flesh. That'd be great. But that's not normative, or at least I'm not a Christian. But what is normative about this? What is going on? I think the point is that Luke is showing us there's continuity in how Jesus ministers to us before the resurrection and after the resurrection. Let me explain. So in, in, in verse uh, 26, Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? And so now the biblical teaching is that Christ reigns in glory at the right hand of the Father. He is now Lord over the church. Does that mean he doesn't have as much time for us? Is he still available and accessible to us? Now that he's in his glory... Is he as accessible as he was when he was on earth and he was a friend of sinners and he ate with sinners and tax collectors? I, uh, when I was in college, I, I did an internship at my home church in Pennsylvania. I interned with a young adults pastor and it was a, um, he was a wonderful, wonderful pastor, really admire him. A couple years later, he became the senior pastor of that church. Very big church, about four to 5,000 attenders, last I checked. And a couple years ago, I was, I was visiting my parents in Pennsylvania, and I, I emailed them. I said, hey, Bo, I'd love to get together, catch up, see how you're doing. And so he said, great, come to my office. So I met him, and, uh, and he started the meeting, not rudely, but just up front, like, hey, I, I only have 30 minutes, and then I got to get back to work. I'm really sorry. I'm not saying this to be critical of him. 
as shockingly as it sounds, megachurch pastors also live within a 24-hour day, and there's limited time. And he was honestly very generous to give me 30 minutes because he's a very busy man. But I wonder, as we think of Jesus going into his glory, now he's the Lord over the whole church, do we think the same thing? It's like, well, Jesus is now a big deal. Is he really going to spend time with me? Who haven't written scripture, who haven't planted churches, who haven't started missionary movements. And I think that's why Luke gives us a story. Because here are two disciples who we've never heard of. Again, they're not writing the New Testament. They're not planting churches. And Jesus spends an entire afternoon and evening. Not just any afternoon or evening, the afternoon or evening of his resurrection. Kind of an important day to be out, like letting people know you're out and about. And he spends it with these two disciples. And I think what Luke is trying to tell the church who's receiving this and tell us, us, you know, 2,000 years later, is look, Jesus is now reigning in glory. He's the Lord of the church, but he still interacts with us in the same way he did when he was on earth. He's still a friend of sinners. He still sits and, and, and ministers to us by taking long afternoons and just walking with us and teaching us. He's not too busy for us. He's not too important for us. I think that's one of the reasons why Luke gives us the story. And now because Christ has a resurrected body, what that means is he can minister to each of you individually at the same time. That's, a, that's an amazing thought, to think you can get down on your knees and, and you don't get a form response from Jesus, right? He doesn't send you his assistant. I'm sorry, I'm busy today. You go into the presence of the risen Jesus Christ Every time you go into prayer, that's an amazing thing. I think, I think we need to hear that sometimes. He's still the same Jesus when he walked on earth and he ate with random people and he gave his time liberally to whoever wanted it, who spent a few years with just a couple people. He's still the same Jesus, even though he reigns in glory, even though he's reigning over the church. Well, in this story, we see, that we see how the first disciples came to understand and believe the resurrection. Uh, and in the end, what was decisive was encountering the risen Jesus. There's no amount of study that could substitute for that. There's no amount of testimony of another believer. They had to actually see Jesus. That was what brought it all to completion. And that's still the case. Again, we don't see Christ through our eyes, but every Christian will see Christ by faith. That's what makes us believe in the resurrection. Ancients weren't any more likely to believe in resurrection than a 21st century American. What brought belief was actually seeing Jesus. And the same for us. As the classic hymn goes, Jesus alone can change the leopard spots and melt the heart of stone. Let's pray. Jesus, what a wonderful thing it is to see you going after Cleopas and his fellow disciple, who we don't even know his name, but you cared enough about them to spend an afternoon on the day you were resurrected, teaching them, showing them yourself. Christ, who are we that you would spend such time on us? We love you with all our hearts. May our lives reflect you and glory in you more and more. We offer you the praise of our lips, because you are worth it. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.